Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. Okay, so excited to have Melissa Rambarron and Candice Milano, two incredible young women, millennials, who are from the Milano Rambarran team at Brown Harris Stevens. And you girls are just pioneering with your real estate podcast, which is unbelievable, the buildup. And you've even started an organization for women in real estate. And I just don't know how you guys, with your backgrounds, decided A, to go into real estate and what in your personal backgrounds is. And one of you is an immigrant and the other one comes from an immigrant family. So we share a lot in common. What about your background made you decide to go into real estate? For me personally, I was born in Westchester County in New York. And my mother, she's an immigrant from Beirut, Lebanon. She came to the U.S. when she was 16 years old during a civil war crisis in the country. So really like a refugee, similar to you, and during a very traumatic time. She was also older, so she had her friends and her school. And leaving during that time is very difficult. And my father, he's a first-generation Italian born in Brooklyn, New York. So, <laughs> so I'm from New York, and I moved to New York City to go to college. I went to Pace University in, in Financial District in Manhattan, and I studied business. I actually also studied Spanish. You know, I'm not Spanish, <laughs> but my mom speaks five languages, and so I love languages, and I'm a little embarrassed that my Spanish isn't as good as it should be, <laughs> despite the fact I have a degree in it. But I really enjoyed the process of learning another language in a very deep way and the culture and all of that. So despite having the two degrees in business and in Spanish, when I graduated, I still, like many, had no idea what I wanted to do. One thing I knew for sure, though, is that I wasn't going to work for anybody. I couldn't do the corporate scene. I couldn't climb that ladder. I couldn't get myself to like being in an office nine to five. Like That just was not for me. I knew that much. So that left me with one other option, which was to be an entrepreneur. But that's a very vague and broad path in life. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do to make money? And one thing that really piqued my interest was real estate investing, to be a landlord, to get passive income. I'm like, this is great. Like, I don't even have to work. And I. <laughs> but how did you even know about passive income and all that stuff? Because most young people don't have a clue about anything financial. Yeah, I was definitely in that bucket myself. I can't even remember how I first uncovered it. I think that I wanted to just find a way where I didn't have to work and I was researching. And that's kind of how I came across franchises and other things. I think it was through my research. And I really liked the idea of real estate investing because it's tangible and I could wrap my head around it. And no one in my family is in real estate. So I didn't have any guidance from that perspective. A lot of people do have that. So I had to do all of my own self-education and research. And I had a whole plan. Like when I was in college, I was working as a waitress. And so here in the city, you can make quite a bit of money waitressing. So I had saved quite a bit of money. I didn't have enough money for a down payment for a building in Manhattan, of course, but I was going to buy something back in Westchester where I'm from. And my plan, my strategy was I was going to buy something along a town on the Metro North railroad train, which goes from Manhattan to Westchester and further up in New York. It also goes into Connecticut. So I was going to find a town that was up and coming on that train path. And I figured it'd be smart because of the commuters to New York City and such. And I even found the building. It was a three-unit building. And I had enough money for that down payment. 
And before I pulled the trigger, I was like, I don't really know anything about what I'm about to do. And I just don't want to blow this savings that I worked so hard to have. So took a little bit more time before buying it. And across that pause that I had, I met somebody who owned a boutique real estate brokerage. And I was like, let me pick his brain. So I met with him and I told him what I wanted to do. And he's like, you should get your license because if you do, you'll learn the industry and you'll make better investments. And I was like, that makes sense. And then he also misled me by telling me that I would make money so easy. And that wasn't true. So I did get my license within a month of speaking to him. Wow. That's fast for a license. Yeah, it was fast because I was determined to get this going. I had just graduated, so I didn't have school anymore. But yeah, I graduated in May. And I think by September, I had my license. And I started working there and I quickly realized that I really loved what I was doing. I loved that, you know, no two days were the same, that I had my autonomy. I love New York City. I loved going around and seeing the tremendous real estate that we have here. But I definitely knew I didn't know what I was doing. And because I didn't know what I was doing, I couldn't make any money. So I made like $6,000 in my first six months, which I didn't get very far. And because I was misguided by this broker, I didn't know to ration my savings. I thought I was going to make money really quickly. And so I was just spending like I had been making back when I was waitressing, which by the way, I had at that point stopped when I got into real estate. So I blew through that savings for that building within the first six months. But what was interesting is that I knew I found my passion because a lot of times when you're not making that instant return and you love it, then that really proves to yourself that you found what you love to do because it's easy if you're making tons of money to confuse that for really loving it. But I wasn't making money, but I really wanted to keep going at this. And so I decided I needed to learn and I joined a team so I could learn the business, gain some skills. And it was actually on that team that I met Melissa. Melissa, you are an immigrant. Yeah, my story was a little different from Candace's. I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was 16 years old from Guyana, South America, landed in the Bronx, went to high school there, went to college, same as Candace here in New York City. So we are all there in New York City. That's all we live and breathe right now. And after college, I was a journalist, but I realized very quickly that was not my passion. So I took some time off. I got married. I had a baby. He's now 12. Oh my God. You don't look old enough to have a 12 year old. Uh, You're kind. Thank you. I took that time off, raised my child for about four years or so. And I started thinking, okay, I want to go back to work, but I did not want to be a journalist at all. And as most women in general, they often look at real estate and think it's very flexible in their time. And so I decided to give it a go because we bought our first home within that time period. And I realized that a lot of the brokers were not very knowledgeable. I felt I knew a lot more doing my own research. And I'm like, hey, I could probably do a better job and decided to get my license, started at a very boutique agency. And I realized I really love real estate. I love that no two days are the same. And there's no cap on the income, which is nice. And after that small boutique agency, I just had a bigger vision for myself. I wanted to get into new development, sales and marketing, and as such, they didn't really give me that support. So I moved to the city and I joined a team because I needed that experience. But when you say you moved to the city, you moved the husband, the baby, everybody. No, we were living in the suburbs and I wanted to have more of that exposure with new developments in New York City. So I moved my business to Manhattan and I had to take a few steps back from where I was, but 
that's part of that mentality that you just want to get forward, but you sometimes have to go backwards a few steps. And I actually joined the same team and Candace and I joined about two or three months apart. And that's where we met. And so many young people today don't even want to work anywhere. They want to be influencers and do content. And yes, you guys are doing content to help build your brand. But do you think it's your background? Do you think it's part of being a New Yorker? Do you think it's part of being immigrants or kids of immigrants that you fell in love with something that is very meat and potatoes and very solid and acid based? Yes, that's something we talk about a lot, the challenges in this industry and the work ethic. And so it has very much to do with our backgrounds and upbringings. Melissa can speak for herself. But for me, I witnessed my parents working really, really hard. And if I needed or wanted something growing up, I had to find a way to work for it. And one of those passions of mine growing up was I was an equestrian. I loved horses, but they're very expensive. And we definitely did not have the means to have a horse. And so for me to have a horse, I had to work. And from 13 years old, I would work my entire summers. I would work 40 hours a week. And then during the school year, I would work weekends and I would go every single day after school. And I did that from 13 to when I graduated high school. And during that time, I was able to have a horse and compete. And it was the best experience of my life. But it didn't phase me because I loved what I was doing. And it's the same thing with real estate, where when I came in and I'm working around the clock, weekends, holidays, when people are off work, it didn't phase me because once again, I loved it. And so that's been the correlation in my life, which if I'm passionate about something, I will work as hard as I need to, to be successful. And we agreed. That mentality is definitely lacking. We see a lot of entitlement. We come across it because people look at Melissa and I, they look at our age and what we've accomplished, and they think that they're going to just pop up on the scene and duplicate that without really investing the time that's needed. But yeah, absolutely. And I think just being an immigrant as well, we came from a really middle class background from Guyana, but I watched my dad came over here and restarted. He came here for my brother and I, essentially, for that American dream. And I think it was mostly just seeing him coming back here, restarting his life, working in a factory, actually, after having established a very lucrative career back there. And he was willing to do it. He was willing to come here and restart it. And I've seen that work ethic. And my dad is my hero. So I try to emulate that determination and that passion. and. When I did get into real estate, I determined that I wanted to have that career. I loved it. And I know it wasn't going to be easy. So I knew the challenges ahead. And I think just having a strategy and just having an outlook and goals. And I think that's what's really lacking. I think a lot of people come into real estate, especially the younger generation, and they're looking at TV shows and it's so glamorized, which is not reality here. It's, it's actually ironic. And they come in wanting that payday and they don't see the grit that it takes. And Candace and I, when we formed our team, we worked many, many, many months without even having a paycheck, right? And I think that's the grit and determination that's needed for success. I'm so glad you're saying that because the big thing that I see when I see a lot of these shows is like you see the sales part and looking good, but you don't see the back of the house. You don't see all the paperwork, all the legality, all of the hundreds of places you have to show for months and you don't get a sale and kind of what is it to be an opener and a closer? I don't think people realize there's so many young people that have run into real estate. My kid came right out of college and went into real estate. It's like the hot business because they see it on TV, 
But how do you stand out? And how do you get a clientele? And how do people take you seriously? Can you walk us through what is the life of someone in real estate? And how do you even stand out? Obviously, everyone's paths are very different. You know, we treat this like its own business. And that's really what's helped us go from nothing to where we are today, despite not having any kind of network. Like some people have a leg up because their parents and their families are super well networked or they went to an incredible school where they got a lot of business from that. But Melissa and I didn't necessarily have a robust sphere of influence just because of our upbringings of people who were wealthy enough to buy in Manhattan or in New York City. So we definitely did do deals initially from our sphere of influence, but that wasn't going to cut it. That wasn't going to pay our bills if we relied just on that. So we had to find other ways to grow the business. And what you said about everyone getting into it, it's the hottest thing is really interesting. I don't know if you know this, but 87% of people who become a broker either quit or fail within the first five years, 87%. So the reason is that the barrier to entry is extremely low. At least here in New York, you take a 75-hour course and you pass two tests and that's it. And then once you're in, you think, like you said, that you're going to make all this money very quickly. I was guilty of that, or at least misled. But people quickly find out that's not the case, especially if it's in a down market. You're really struggling to make every sale. It's like pulling teeth. And so back to your question, it was just beyond our sphere of influence. We had to find ways to differentiate ourselves. And I think we really did a great job of that with Tower. Yeah, she and I had the conversation, hey, we parted ways from the team that we were on, but because we have that same work ethic and you know we have the same outlook and the same goals, we decided to form a team. And what did we know back then, right? We had to sit down and we're like, hey, we don't have clients. What do we do? But we did have the knowledge and we had everything else that was missing except for the clients. So we had to sit down, we had a strategy meeting. We're like, hey, so how do we differentiate ourselves, right? We sat down and we're like, okay, there's really a gap. There is a reason why we don't have this network. It's because we came from immigrant backgrounds. We, you know, a lot of immigrants, they just want to save and they want to hold on to that cash. They don't know how to invest, right? We want to bridge this gap. We see a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Zs, the younger generation, they don't have this financial literacy. So we decided to form the Tower, the organization by women in real estate to really carry out this mission. We're on a mission to really educate and empower the younger generations and just people in general, how to use real estate as a wealth building tool. But how did you guys know how to even do that? You start an organization. How do you know how to even find people? (laughs) It's a good question. I think what Melissa and I do well is that when we come up with an idea, we just run at it. You know, we didn't know what to do to answer your question. You start with an idea and then you kind of work your way backwards. And so We did research. We knew that there was a need. We knew we had the knowledge. And so we initially started hosting events where there would be an educational component as well as a networking component. So people who are like-minded, who wanted to learn about investing could walk away with value, not only in the form of information, but through valuable relationships. So that's how a lot of deals get done is the good ones a lot of times are off market. So you need to have a really good network. And so we were there curating events. And how did you get people to come? Did you do it through social media? How did you even figure that out? So we were fearless, actually. (laughs) We pulled up a list of all of the developers who have active projects in the neighborhood and throughout the whole city. And we were cold emailing them and they responded. They were interested and they came. We actually signed 
our first building within six months of forming our team because of this cold outreach and because we had the knowledge, but we just couldn't get into the room. So we got them into the room with this organization and they were curious. They were like, what are these two women doing? Who are they? And they came and because they came and we were able to speak to them in a professional, educated way, they listened and they trusted us enough to sign us. When you say they signed you, what does that mean in real estate? It means that they trust us enough for us to represent the sale of their building to market and sell it. Wow. So it just goes to show that if you, it's what I said in my book, to be chosen, you have to choose yourself. If you put yourself out there as an expert in an area and you just put yourself out there, people know that you even exist. So that's a key component. And from there, how did you keep getting more and more people in your network? Yeah, so we did hit a roadblock like anyone in business. We had had COVID. And so in COVID, we could no longer do our events. So like many people, we went to the virtual route and we hosted webinars, but in a very tasteful way. As you know, everyone was really hungry for information at that time. Like, is the world ending? Is New York dead? And all of this. So we were able to provide really timely insights from you know experts in our industry and people just ate that up. So we actually were able to grow Tower through COVID by just adapting to the climate we were in. And because a lot of people in our industry took pause, which we totally understand, it was a very scary times, but we were the only ones really in the new development space that we could see that were really being active in a meaningful way. So that caught developers' attention. And we were top of mind when the time came to sign more projects coming out of development. So we were able to grow our business from the earlier parts by being really present during COVID and obviously by providing results. Because at the end of the day, if you don't know what you're doing, you might get the first building, but you're not going to get the call for the second one nor the referral. So referrals is a very important way to grow your business. And you're only going to get that if you can provide results. And I think during COVID, of course, everyone was scared, like Candace mentioned. But I think for us, what really differentiates us is we had perhaps like the first week, oh my gosh, what's happening is the world ending. But we had, again, our sit down meeting and we're like, okay, how can we capitalize? Because there's always opportunity amongst chaos. And so we're like, all right, well, everyone is on their phone, right? Everyone is looking at their phone. Everyone is wanting to know what is happening. There's so much uncertainty. And I think that's where we came up with our plan. Like, okay, well, let's go back to our mission of educating and empowering. And but we can't do it in person. And that's how we came up with the idea of just this webinar. And we were top of mind, right? A lot of brokers, not to their fault. It was a really bad time, of course, but they kind of fell off, like Candace mentioned, that high percentage. And we're just super resilient, which is one of our strengths. So you're trying to represent commercial buildings at that time? We only do residential. So thank God you were doing residential buildings, but What happens when you're a commercial agent and something like that happens? I mean, it's like from one day to the next, you have no business, right? Super scary. They actually, as you know, locked down here in New York. We weren't allowed to work for four months. And if we can't work and show property, we can't make a living. So it was a very, very scary time. And so despite the fact that residential wasn't a better place than commercial, no one was buying residential either. You know, no one's just buying sight unseen in the midst of a crisis and no one knew where the market in New York would go. So we feel for that position that I think all brokers and a lot of people in many industries were in. And so I think once you kind of get over the initial shock, which we both had that moment where we like obviously experienced that and you're not thinking super strategically. But after that, 
like Melissa said, you have to just see where is the opportunity in this crisis, because there always is one. You just have to take the emotional piece away from what's going on around you so you can think clearly and come up with a plan. And if your plan doesn't work, you adapt it and you try something else, but you just have to keep going forward. There's just no stopping. There's no quitting. During that period, you guys didn't think we're going to have to go do something else for a while? I think we thought it, but we never actually allowed us to even really consider it. I mean, it was scary. We made zero dollars <laughs> during course. that period. I think what was optimistic around that time, though, is as soon as you know everything kind of opened up a little bit and we were allowed to work, we did sign three projects during COVID. So that was, we were like, okay, so we have something to look forward to, again, because of just being top of mind and just educating our audience. So they reached out to us and we did sign this project. So I think that was our little glimmer of hope that we always <laughs> try to be super optimistic about. And one thing that helped, and you talk a lot about this, is that we both lived very beneath our means. Because of our income structure, the fact that we're commission only, we don't have any steady paycheck to rely on. We would live in like very affordable homes and keep our carrying costs low. So while we were barely making any money during that time, we didn't have a lot of overhead. So that also helped as well. Being really frugal as you build your business, any business I think is super important. But during that time, didn't it also happen that people actually were afraid to go out and go see buildings and all of that? So didn't you have to switch more to like making more videos of the buildings, which cost more money? And as a broker, don't you have to front that money? We do have support from our company, which is great. But also we did try to sell on Zoom, which was interesting, right? There was no sales. And that's why I think we're good with this whole AI issue coming up. I think there is nothing that can really take over sales in person because Zoom was not happening. We tried really hard. <laughs> also, there were people leaving New York and going to Florida and other states. There was like a mass exodus. Did the prices go down as well? Very much so. We saw a huge decline in prices. There was definitely an exodus from the city. Those who believed in New York never really lost faith long term, but many people rushed to Florida and other states that had more open, flexible policies. And what happened is, is that the prices did come down and it allowed an opportunity for people who were on the sidelines. And I mean that literally like in New Jersey and Westchester and other parts of Long Island, who had always been priced out of New York to come in. So that what happened is that there was a little bit of a recycling. So a lot of people left, but because the prices came down, it allowed people who had really always wanted to be in New York City, maybe young professionals or people who had to commute, they were finally able to afford it. And they were like, this is my opportunity. So we saw a complete recycling of the residents in New York, not complete, but a big chunk of it. And I think obviously 2020 was a complete wash, right? But Literally January 1st of 2021, the market shifted and it was like the complete opposite of 2020. We were so busy. And I think a lot of those sideline buyers, they actually listened to us and they actually bought. Interest rates were super, super low and prices were low, right? So they got a really, really good deal. Again, opportunity and chaos, right? And I swear we were like talking to one of our clients and they are just so, so happy. They're like, thank you for advising me to buy when I did. A lot of people were cautious and we're kind of seeing that same trend right now because now it's high interest rates, right? But there's also an affordability crisis and a housing shortage, especially here in New York City. And a lot of people are just really scared to buy because they're thinking, okay, interest rates are coming down next year. I'm going to wait. But 
there's really no inventory here in the city, especially in new buildings. Because of COVID and high prices and interest rates, builders are not building. So there are no inventory here. And so the last that we have of it, we are really advocating for people to buy right now before the interest rates drop, then prices are going to go up. Whereas if you buy now, you can actually refi later on. You can't buy lower than. So that's what we're really advocating. Which is true. I mean, how many times have I bought stuff? I mean, back in the day, people think interest rates are so high. I bought things at 14% and then refied and refied and refied. That's what the game used to be. So there's always somebody that invests in a bad market. They've been through it before, so they know opportunity comes to take advantage of it. Hold on. Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so with all that being said, you guys decide also to do a podcast. So what was the mindset of that? And what does the buildup mean? So the podcast is our latest initiative through Tower. It was marrying the first version of Tower, which included a lot of in-person events, and then how it evolved through COVID to be solely virtual. And what we realized through COVID is we were able to reach such a broader audience by having a more online platform and really helped grow our mission of getting out there and educating beyond just the people in our network and the people in New York City who would come to our events. We can really reach anyone and everyone who would listen. And so that's where we decided that the podcast would be a great media platform to spread the good news and the (laughs) gospel of real estate investing. You know, we've enjoyed it so much. The build up has a few meanings. It's really to build up your wealth or it could be building up a building. Mm-hmm. So it has a few meanings, but the main meaning is to build up your wealth. And we interview real estate investors like yourself. We were so happy to have you on who come from all different backgrounds of life. I think that's what's so interesting about the show so that you can really see how people, you know, like yourself and others got into real estate, what their first deal looked like and where they landed today and different strategies as well. Because again, not one size fits all for investing. Not everyone should be a landlord. Some people need something really passive, like just investing in a REIT. Can you explain a REIT to people in case they don't know what it is? Yeah. So it's similar to like a stock where you're able to park your money in this real estate fund where you literally do nothing. And it's the same idea as a stock, but it's just based on real estate companies. And so right now it's really interesting. Like I'm invested in a big one. Starwood is like a big national landlord. And right now is a great time to be investing in landlords because rents are so high. Like Melissa said, there's an affordability crisis. And so right now it's a landlord's market. And so it could be, you know, again, you should always speak with your financial advisor, but that's something that I saw as an opportunity. And I got in a while ago coming out of COVID was the right time to kind of get into that space. But yeah, again, I don't I don't have to touch it. I don't have to think about it. It's completely passive. Obviously, you should be strategic about where you're putting it. So that's one way you could be invested in real estate without even needing to buy a building, right? Yeah. Oftentimes, especially the younger generation, they don't have enough money for payment. But there is a new program that just came out. I don't know if you heard about it, but they're now allowing financing up to 95% on a multifamily, two to four units, the requirements is that you have to occupy one of the units as your primary residence and you get to rent out the others. You're able to use either the current or the proposed rental income of the other units to help you qualify for the purchase. 
So it's very interesting. It's kind of what had initially intrigued me to get into real estate where I could live in one of the units, rent out the others, cover my cost of living, maybe have some extra cash flow from that, build equity, not waste money on rent. And it's only 5% down. Is that only in New York? No, it's everywhere. National program, it just came out. It's a very, very interesting program. I think it's very smart for a first-time buyer as well, who's just looking to get into the business. And not necessarily first-time, but a great program for them. There's a few caveats, of course. There's a loan amount limit, like you can only lend up to about a million-dollar loan. But again, you can still buy a couple unit building in parts of Brooklyn and Queens here in New York, obviously in other places, that money goes a lot further. And you know they want to look for a certain amount of post-closing liquidity, but that's pretty standard. But overall, I think it's a really, really interesting program. And it's helping people right now, to Melissa's point, who don't have substantial down payments saved, get into it sooner than they otherwise would have. How do you feel about pre-construction? As you know, because you heard me say that, that's how I got started. And can you explain the model of pre-construction when it works and when it doesn't work? You know, the idea is that getting in early to a project, the best time to buy a new development is usually at the very beginning and sometimes at the very end. (laughs) So if you can get in early, typically in past markets that have been stronger over the sales process, the sponsor or the developer of the building will continue to increase prices. So let's say you bought in, it's called Schedule A price. It's the first price that's offered for a million dollars, maybe within a few months before you even closed on it or bought it, the next contracts are going out at a million, 25 million, 50, you know, and they keep going up and up. So you built equity because now your apartment is worth a couple hundred grand or whatever the interval is. And you did nothing within a few years time. And then you're able to grow that equity and potentially lease it out or sell it and start that process over with the next building. But The market has not always been so strong, at least here in New York City. So we haven't done the price increases that we used to see. So in other states, it's definitely like Florida, people are doing that. But in the city, we're not necessarily seeing a lot of price increases over the course of a sales process. Can we talk a little bit about laws from state to state? And you also have to be careful because like, for instance, what you're saying about landlords is probably good in New York. It's horrible in California where I own property and how you have to have money put away We talked when I spoke to you guys on your podcast about how if I had not had money saved during the pandemic, I would have lost my buildings because I had to float my buildings and pay for everything for a couple of years because the governor told everybody not to pay the rent. So what are some of these things that we have to tell people that they also, you know, get about living beneath your means? And having money to float your properties. The laws in terms of? Well, like when our governor says, don't anybody pay the rent. And you as a landlord have to keep paying the building, the mortgage, the taxes and everything. What do we tell those people about also having some liquidity? So like in my case, I could have lost my building if I didn't have liquidity. With this new program and in others, banks always look for having a certain amount of post-closing liquidity. In this case, They want to see six months of carrying that you have up to six months. If you didn't get a penny in rent, that you could float that building. And that's minimum. So obviously, the more you can have, the better. But you're not even going to be able to buy this building through this program if you don't have six months of carry in the bank after the down payment. So obviously, that's another hurdle to get in. But it's important because you don't want to put yourself in a position to lose the building. So if you can't buy it with the down payment and have six months runway, then you shouldn't buy the building. And I think even as a primary residence here in New York City, in terms of co-ops and condos, you have to go through a board process to get approved. And 
they do look for that as well. Some condos, I mean, co-ops, they look for at least a year. Two years in most cases. It's good for people to know that. So young people, how do they, I mean, this 5% thing is a great way for somebody to get started. But when you live in New York City or Brooklyn or whatever, where everybody's spending their last time, and as we know, most young people are being subsidized by their parents because who the heck can afford to live there? And California, Los Angeles is the same now. Miami, where I am, has become very expensive. Are you worried that people of your generation can't get in the door? Definitely. I think that if there was more work ethic and they were willing to maybe have a side hustle, that would help supplement the savings because most entry-level positions in New York barely cover your cost of living. So it's really difficult to save on top of that. So you either have to be willing to live at home. We had one guest on our show where she wanted to buy. She didn't come from a family where they could just gift it to her, but she was from Staten Island. And so she decided to live at home for two years. And she's like, it wasn't, you know, a popular opinion at the time. I was really young and I wanted to obviously be in the city like my friends, but they were paying, you know, three, $4,000 in rent and I was saving that money. So there's different ways to do it if you really want to, and you set your mind to do it, whether you live at home, live beneath your means, save, hustle for a second job to have that additional money coming in. There's ways to do it. You just have to be willing to sacrifice. You're not going to have it all at once, right? You can have it all over time. So people have to know that and be willing to kind of pay their dues. And I think too, in this generation of social media, we see a lot of young people, they would prioritize going away to Europe for these trips or go to these Michelin star restaurants, right? So it's more about living in that instant gratification kind of mindset rather than experiential. Exactly. Instead of having goals and strategy for the future. And I think that's really the biggest hurdle. But if you were to do what Candace just mentioned, then also build a team of professionals around you, the brokers, the lenders, you kind of have to have your whole team aligned for when you are ready, because there are always opportunities. And if you're aligned with the right people, then you can really get into it and own your home. I find that that such an important lesson because I, who am older than you guys, I have so many friends my age. They say to me, did you just make way more money than me? And I go, no, you were like buying a Jaguar when you were 28 or 30. You were going to Europe. You were having all these experiences. And I always say, sacrificing is not suffering. You're sacrificing for something greater than you. But later on in life, when you're older, when you're the mom in the group and you're dead broke, it's not pretty to be dead broke as you're getting older. That's when you want to go on the trip and want to do all these things. And if you don't compound your money early, it's not going to happen. So what's the advice you would give young people on why this asset class is still the best one? And what are the things that you recommend they do so they can get in the door? If you just look at property values historically from the beginning all over this country, you'll see that over time, they do appreciate. Of course, they go up, they go down. But over a long enough period, home values in this country appreciate. So this is a long-term investment. If you get in, you can buy something so that, again, you're not you're building equity and you're not wasting money on rent. And over a long enough period, that home will appreciate. And so that's a very unique asset type, whereas things like the stock market and other investment vehicles are not as stable, but some of them can generate quicker returns, which is enticing to people. And maybe it's good to be diversified in different types, but real estate is a very sound long-term investment and you can't really mess it up if you hold it for long enough, you know, like over enough time, it will appreciate. So you have this tangible as well. Right. 
And there's different ways to monetize the asset, which is interesting. Like even if you outgrow a space, you could always rent it. And you can also appreciate its value by renovating it over time if it starts to look dated. And so there's a lot that you can do to manipulate the investment over time. And that's what's really special about it. And as far as to get in and like to your point of like, what can they do? I think like Melissa said, the first thing is you have to really educate yourself because we know what it feels like to know nothing about investing. And so you have to start to listen to podcasts, do research, start to just hear all of the different ideas that are out there because it's definitely not one size fits all and start saving. I think I always found it easier to save when I had a goal. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I spent my money if I didn't know (laughs) that I needed to buy real estate. I was going to spend that on who knows what and never see a return from it. So I needed a goal personally. And I think if what you should do is to look in the area that you're thinking to buy, start to see what's the best property you can buy. Is it the program that we just spoke about? You know, look for a building near you, two to four units, figure out what's the price point, what the rents could be there, how much you need to save it, like start to make it real, start to manifest it. And then you realize you only need $50,000 to make this happen. And you can maybe save that, let's say you give yourself two to three years. I don't know, it depends on your income and where you are, but you start to make it real by starting to understand, you know, what your real life options are. That's what I would do. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I did that when I bought my first home, I had a clear goal. I had a clear strategy of how I was going to get there. And like you said, it's not really sacrifice if it's for something greater, but definitely did not go on those trips and put it (laughs) off for a few years. And my asset appreciated, I think, over 100% in about four years. So definitely a wise investment. Let's talk about the tax benefits of real estate. The American tax system really does reward you for investing in real estate. And that's kind of the other secret hidden truth that you're going to do much better in saving taxes by owning real estate. You are whether it's by your write-offs, the mortgage interest and all of that, but also depreciation as well. Depreciation. And then the big one is the 1031 exchange. My favorite. Your favorite. <laughs> Basically, if you sell a property, you're given a certain amount of time to roll that profit into a new property so that you defer the capital gain tax, which can be quite significant depending on if your property really appreciated over the time that you owned it. And so you get to defer that tax and buy an investment property. You have to rent it out for the first two years. And after that, if you want to live in it, you can, but it has to be an investment property. So it's a model that we see people do it religiously <laughs> for decades. Just I do it religiously. Yeah. So that's another opportunity. And there are many, many more. And that kind of goes back to the whole advisor mentality of like really aligning yourself with someone who's educated and knows what they're talking about, because it's, again, the plan needs to work for you and where you are in life. And all of these different factors, because we are talking about real estate and it is so much tied to your life, your lifestyle, your age, your family dynamics. So it needs to be catered to you. But that is another really big thing that people don't talk enough about is the different tax advantages there are owning real estate. And how about the idea of putting properties that you buy in an LLC? Why is that important? Most people do that. I think it definitely provides some separation from you and your personal assets, right? And so you're able to do more write-offs that way by having the LLC ownership. Also, it does provide, in many cases, a layer of privacy as well. And that's important to some of our buyers too, to not necessarily have like their personal name on all the properties that they own. So that's a lot of what we see here. I think also, if somebody sues you because they fall in your building, 
They can't sue you personally. They're suing a company. And so the liability is only within that company, which is why it's a pain to do it. But it's very important to do it because it's happened to me. And it really protected me from really, really, really bad things. I want to hear from both of you. You're both so directed. You know what you want. And I just love that because you're young and you have everything ahead of you. What do you want for yourselves, for your company? And I always thought, I want to own my building for my business. I want to own a place in my country of origin. Well, it turned out that's communist. I can't do it. So Miami had to be the next best thing. I always took pictures of buildings I wanted. And I always said I also wanted to buy a church. And now I bought a church too. What's your vision for your business and your vision for yourselves in real estate and in wealth building? Personally, for me, coming from that immigrant background and just coming over here for that American dream, I think my mission is to really educate and empower women. I think when women have financial security, they're able to strive for the stars and the moons, right? Rather than being stuck in perhaps a bad relationship or situations where they don't feel empowered. I think once you're educated and you do have that financial freedom, you're free to do a lot more. And I think through Tower, what we've been building is just really empowering not only women, I think just everyone in general and how to really invest. And I think that's personally a mission of mine because I didn't grow up with that. I didn't have that opportunity, right? And I want to provide that. And I think that's why Candace and I really align because we share that mission and that purpose. And to see that fulfilled is just really, really rewarding. And I align with you too. (laughs) (laughs) And then how about for you, Candace? Yes. So of course, on the business side, and also, you know, it's hard to separate it because real estate is not a job. It's a lifestyle, at least what we do. And that's something that I learned early on as well. So our business interests and our personal interests are always somewhat overlapped. And so as a person and as a businesswoman to carry out that mission, Melissa said, to see how I can help others so that they don't have to go down a decade long career like we did to find the confidence and knowledge to make sound investments would make me feel very fulfilled as a professional person. And again, it has even greater impacts beyond just, wow, we help them build wealth. But again, that really plays into their own self-esteem, their own opportunities. And so it really is helping a person beyond just okay, you made some great investments. And so I think that that's something that we both really align on as professional women. And then personally, you know, I would love to take some of my own advice and continue to invest. Like I have started the process. It took me longer than I wanted to, because like I told you, I wasted, not wasted, but I spent all my savings early on trying to get my business going. So I didn't get started on the investing side till later because it took such a long time for us to have an income beyond what we needed just to live day to day, like to have extra savings, like we spoke about to invest. So I have more that I want to do in that area. I want to buy more buildings. <laughs> I want to own more real estate. I want to see that part of my portfolio flourish more. You know, it started, I've definitely planted the foundation, but I would like to see more in that area. Do you feel coming from all of our backgrounds that when you go into real estate, because you can see so easily that other people have built massive wealth in real estate, that it is possible for all of us to do that in our life? Absolutely. I think for me personally, I always think big, right? I always was the one to have these dreams, but not just have dreams, right? It's just really go out and execute against that. And I think that's why Candace and I are just so aligned in our partnership 
is because we have these big ideas and big missions and big dreams, but we execute and we always think it's possible. There is that fearlessness and that determination to really achieve our goals. And I think not have self-limitations. And that's what's so cool, obviously beyond investing, but back to the brokerage is that you get what you put into it. So there's no income cap. And while that can be a detriment in the beginning, once you get it going, you know, it's really exciting because the sky's the limit. You can make as much as you can possibly dream of and work towards. So that's what's exciting about our industry. You're not in a salary with a cap and you're looking for your bonus and, you know, 20 years from now, you'll make a little bit more. So it's a very exciting career path, but it's also, you know, a very difficult one. Tough. (laughs) Well, I just have such admiration for both of you because you have hustled. And you have not just taken the status quo. And I know I'm going to see two very wealthy women. And it's good for you to to hang with me because if you had told me that I came from a communist regime, that I worked in TV, which sounds very glamorous, but some years you make money and some years you don't, and that I would have made five times the money in real estate than in my TV life, which has allowed me to be a multimillionaire, I would have never believed it myself. And only in this country can women like us in one generation become wealthy. And so I think it's beautiful to see both of you and also the time you've given to give back to other women on the way up. But I know you're both going to be mega, mega, mega successful. You already are, but you're going to even be more. So thank you so much for sharing your beautiful story with us. Thank you. And thank you for years as well. And we are very inspired and Definitely want to continue this dialogue. It's been great chatting. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for your time. Thank you both. Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nelly Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>